Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? We're a new show this summer on CBC Radio 1, and each week we dive into a different aspect of climate change, how it's affecting our lives, and what we can do about it. We'll look at evidence, which may come from data and models and publications, but this week we're talking about another way of knowing and the role Indigenous knowledge and leadership can play in the climate fight. The effects of climate change aren't just forecasts anymore. They're realities, and Inuit people have been living on the front lines for years. I can sit and I can talk to Inuk from Greenland, and we have the same concern, or Baffin Island, or Nunavik, or Nunavut. And everyone you talk to, they're seeing something similar, you know, whether it's permafrost or lack of snow or lack of ice and, you know, the seas, uh, the high seas in the ocean. We've noticed, like, the land is sort of disappearing on us and the sea level is rising. And my balcony is, like, maybe, like, a few inches away from falling over because of the erosion. So that is in the north, but even in southern Canada, First Nations on the west coast are observing warmer and less predictable weather, affecting their homes, their water, and traditional foods. We're harvesting fish, and um, the water was so warm that you could you could grab a salmon, and it was just mush. These sites are getting too dry for cedar, and that means we're not getting any cedar regenerating here. With the, the hot summers here, the, the cedar trees just... It's almost like the branches are burning. Are, are we feeling the impacts of this right now? Definitely. You know, we, we in Simiamo along the coast, we're starting to see higher tides. We're starting to see worse storms. We're starting to see tidal inundation and then the sea level rise. And for some, the ongoing legacy of colonialism, including the reserve system, is making those impacts worse. Historically, we didn't all live right on the river's edge because we knew that these flooded regularly. So we lived up in different areas. And then when, when contact happened and, and a lot of the communities were put on reserves on the edges of the Fraser River, and, and those, those communities are at risk every year. Every year they're at risk. People, communities, lifestyles, they're all at risk. And for Norman Yakalaya, add on another challenge looking out for his people and trying to get his views heard by those in power. Norman is the Dene National Chief and the AFN Regional Chief for the Northwest Territories. Hello there. Hello there, Lawrence. How are you? Kind of zone in my language, I said I am good. You've been at the table as a territorial minister, and I'm wondering what challenges you faced getting your voice heard at the table, knowing that Indigenous communities are disproportionately affected by climate change. Well, the whole system of the territorial government, the federal government, is a foreign government system to the Dene people. Our traditional knowledge are not taken serious. Our traditional knowledge keepers, oral history is not taken seriously. It's a good feeling discussion, but they do not 
take it seriously into the discussions of the impact assessments, of the environment, of the way of life, the way the community works together, the way people uh, govern themselves. We're uh, a byproduct in the government system. Only recently we're hearing the word reconciliation coming out of the prime minister's cabinet, coming out of his voice, but we're not really seeing yet the true the true reconciliation that the Dene people need to be at the table with the federal government, the territorial government, and it's been a long, long struggle. And that means that something so radical that we've been pushing strong is to get our people on the land. The government taking us taking us off their land. Now we're asking. We need the support to go back onto the land and reconnect with the land and make things right. Otherwise, we're going to see more things of the weather changes, the water, everything. It's going to be worse. What do you mean when you say get back on the land? I mean reconnecting back to who we are, using our medicines from our plants our trees, using plants for our healing our bodies to get back in a relationship to the animals, to know the weather, the water, the ceremonies, to pay respect, and to go and live on the land as our way of life, connecting with our families, with our children, with our grandparents. Things are so disconnected in today's world. When we go back to the land, we come back to who we are as Aboriginal people. We love life. The land loves us. We need that connection. Right now, it's not there. Can you give me a specific example of a time when you were not listened to by government when it came to climate change? It's like coming into your house and we just do what we want, throw things around, leave things there, not pick up our stuff. I don't think you're going to be a happy lady if we do that. And that's what government has doing all along on our land, from the oil development to the gold development to the diamond mines, everything. You don't do that to a nation that you supposedly to respect and have treaties with. You don't do that. I'm wondering, that, I'm wondering how worried you are about the future. Well, I'm really, really concerned about the future. You know, I'm concerned that if we do not make a stand, you know, our children will suffer. Their children will suffer. If we have to continue, I never thought, I never thought we would sell, sell bottled water in our stores. That was not a thought that I had growing up in my small town of Tolita. But this water was so fresh, you could drink it out of the river. That today we have bottled water selling in our stores. We have the cleanest water in the world, in the mountains, Great Bear Lake. We used to drink water from the Mackenzie River. You know, so... If our thinking is this way, then we have great concerns about the future. But I, I also know that we have an opportunity now that we need to slow down 
and go back to our original teachings and teach our children well, teach ourselves well, take responsibility to make a stand. If we do that, then there's no cause to be worried. However, if we continue down the path of letting other people determine how our land is going to survive, then I have a little bit of a worry there. National Chief, thank you very much for your time. I said thank you, and it's good in my language. Norman Yakalaya is the National Chief for the Dene Nation. He's also the Regional AFN Chief for the Northwest Territories. Now, he's not the only leader we talked to this week. Ethel Blondin Andrew was the first Indigenous woman elected to Parliament. She was also the first Indigenous woman appointed to Cabinet, and she held office for 17 years. I first met her in Ottawa in the late 1980s when I reported on the Hill. Ethel? Yes? It's Laura. Laura, how are you? <laughs> it's been a very long time. <laughs> a million years. <laughs> well, of course, you listeners know I live in Vancouver. Ethel lives in Norman Wells now. She left federal politics in 2006. And when I got a hold of her, she told me about a new challenge. I'm, I'm living in another world. Yeah. I'm uh, really ensconced in climate change and trying to save the caribou. And Can you see my caribou? Even though she says her focus has changed, Ethel Blondin still keeps a close watch on the land and the water that has sustained her since she was a child who fled residential school. I lived in Tuck in 1973, and there was erosion then, and the school that I taught in was on the banks of the, um, like near the shoreline of the ocean. That's all washed away pretty well now. It wasn't just in Tuck. She lived on Great Bear Lake. The ice cover that stayed frozen until July when she was younger is now gone by June. And in her home in Norman Wells now, the ice on the Mackenzie River is different too. We used to get huge blue shards of clear, strong ice. Now it's all a mush of like a slushy. So of course she's worried. I find it very um, uh, troubling in a way and uh, really makes me committed to try and understand more and try to mitigate and try to look at the whole issue of adaptation. Now, one of the ways she's doing that is through her work on the Indigenous Guardians program for Ethel. It's a reminder of the potential of empowering Indigenous voices. It's magic. It's wonderful. It's what needs to happen. We've just been through a huge rethink around the world globally with the pandemic. And we have to start doing things even more differently. We have to make accommodations that haven't been made before. And I think this is one of them. Now that, of course, is Ethel Blondin Andrews, and we will hear from her again toward the end of the program. But just what is this Indigenous Guardians program? Steve Nita is a senior advisor with the Indigenous Leadership Initiative, and he was crucial in getting the Guardians program up in his community. He began by telling me a bit about what they do. Their primary responsibility is to be, the, to be out on the land, uh, on the waters of our territory, uh, sometimes uh, we wrapped up the program to work with uh, the government of the Northwest Territories in monitoring caribou and caribou habitat. Uh, we've ramped up uh, the program to work with uh, uh, De Beers uh, uh, diamonds, 
uh, in monitoring the uh, downstream impacts of their diamond mines. Uh, we've worked with tourism industry. We've, we work with uh, universities uh, uh, in taking water samples, fish samples. Uh, and all this time, uh, we, are, we, we bring in youth to work along with uh, experienced land users, uh, guided by an elders uh, committee of sorts. Uh, that way we, we ensure that there's a transition and transmission of knowledge of the land, of uh, uh, the worldview that informs the relationship that uh, Tlusiga didn't have with their territory. Do you think that it has made a difference in the way corporations and companies use the land? I believe it they, It has. Can you give me an example of that? The, didn't know their territory like all other First Nations across the country. And providing that level of understanding to, to ensure that caribou uh, or caribou migration routes are understood and respected. And has that happened? It, it has happened. It, it, uh, it does inform how uh, the mines up here manage uh, their environmental programs. For example, uh, during caribou mig- mig- migration, uh, the gardens would be out there uh, informing the mines that the, the migration is in effect, and the mines would shut down traffic during that time. So I'm wondering, Stephen Nita, what, what does the Guardians program mean for climate change? Well, I think the Guardians program means for climate change is uh, monitoring and managing high biodiverse areas. In Canada, we are a big part of that. The world has only 25% biodiversity left. And Indigenous people influence or control 82% of that 25%. So that tells me that Indigenous worldview and its relationship with nature is a solution that all populations of the world can look towards. You talked earlier about the, the transfer of, of knowledge from elders to the younger generation. So they, obviously they're getting a, a benefit culturally, but, but what about um, the economic impact uh, for people who live there? Well, the economic impact is not just felt at the community level, it's felt at the regional level. Uh, the opportunity for Canada to, to create an investment climate in the northern part of the country where employment opportunity is very difficult. I believe guardians can provide uh, uh, a basis for a sustainable economy. Uh, in the Northwest Territories, there's 26 communities. And if each of these communities had a similar program, that could have a major financial impact for the Northwest Territories. I wonder if I could just get a little personal with you for a minute. I, I can hear um, in your voice um, how important the Guardians program is for you. And I'm wondering what it means to you to see the Guardians program get into place and, and start making a difference. Well, you know, you know as, a, as an Indigenous person, I, I'm a subject uh, of the assimilation policy. The policy was, uh, was uh, created and directed towards Indigenous peoples for sure, but it was applied to all Canadians. Guardians represent uh, going back onto the land and reestablishing our responsibilities to our territories and to our communities and to ourselves in a certain sense. Canada conditioned Canadian citizens so that the Canadian citizens were indifferent to what the country was doing to the Indigenous peoples. Uh, 
So to me, indigenous guardians and indigenous protected and conserved areas in this country is an expression of reconciliation at the highest level and at the root level. All right, Stephen, Nita, thank you very much. You're welcome. Stephen Nita is a senior advisor with the Indigenous Leadership Initiative, and we reached him in Yellowknife. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. There is a push to incorporate more Indigenous knowledge in consultation about major projects, including the new federal environmental assessment process, but there are still serious hurdles in how that knowledge is used and what meaningful consultation really means. Now take the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion as an example. Earlier this month, the Supreme Court declined to hear an appeal from three First Nations challenging government approval of the pipeline that Canada now owns. Tsleil-Waututh Chief Leah George Wilson says they produced evidence about their traditional land use that wasn't properly considered. This case is about more than a risky pipeline and a tanker project. It is a major setback for reconciliation. It reduces consultation to a purely procedural requirement that will be a serious barrier to reconciliation. My next guest studies Indigenous knowledge and testified in the first round of the Trans Mountain hearings on behalf of his community, the Sayut in the Saanich Nation on Vancouver Island. Nick Claxton is also an assistant professor at the University of Victoria. Hello. Hello. How would you describe Indigenous knowledge and how it is different from other ways of knowing? Um, well, that's a really big question. First of all, i got to say that Indigenous knowledge and knowledge is plural. It's a it's a knowledge system that's that's intertwined with the land, inseparable from the land. And, and when I say land, I also mean water. And you have an example about this when it comes to salmon. Yeah, just to sort of back up a little bit, I did a a master's degree in in Indigenous governance at the University of Victoria, and I had the opportunity to learn about our traditional fishing practice, the swala, which was a unique practice. And part of what my late uncle Earl Claxton Sr., his, uh, his hereditary name is Yokoitsa, told me in our language that they had two names, a common name and a prayer name. When you look at the language and understand the language, you're actually referring to the salmon as relatives with human spirits. And, and that was a key uh, understanding for me to, to to come to in terms of how we relate to our homelands and territories and it's just a different way of understanding the world and even when you take that lens you would have a sort of a different perspective on 
environmental assessment processes. You testified on behalf of your community at the Trans Mountain Pipeline hearings. What were the challenges to having your views heard and considered there? There was many challenges. I was asked to testify because of my research in term in our traditional fishing technologies. And then for me, going into it, I felt like the process was a formality and that it was very rigid and, and that the outcome was already predetermined. Our, my community has is signatories to a Douglas Treaty from 1852, which says we're entitled to carry on our fisheries as formally. But for us, fisheries as formally is much more than just fishing. It's, it's uh, ownership of our lands and waters, site, fishing sites, summer, our summer village sites, as well as our jurisdiction in, within our territory, our, you know, with, our, with our laws, right? When you talk about the rigidity of the process, how, do, how does that structure get in the way of incorporating Indigenous knowledge in a way that, you, that would be seen as more respectful? You know, I'm a, not a fluent speaker. I'm a, I guess a, I've learned a little bit. My dad's a fluent speaker. So trying to engage in a process in English is a huge barrier, right? You know, it's it's difficult for us to express really important concepts in our Indigenous law in English, right? It's it, There's much to be lost within that sort of translation, right? So in terms of timelines, we didn't have very much time to prepare. Communities, small communities like ours, don't have a lot of resources to, to put towards preparing in a thorough way. But, you know, but we did our best and uh, we thought we made a, really important case in terms of this pro this project going against our laws and, and and you know you know what the result is already right so you when you talk about those specific challenges you face you co-authored this paper about the use of indigenous knowledge and in environmental assessments and and you you thought that those kinds of hurdles the, the strict timelines money training to do it properly could be overcome but you also talked about things that are going to take a lot more work. Can you tell me about those? The land question has never been resolved in, in Canada, especially in BC. And, uh, you know, that's real the real underlying issue, right? It's, it's still Indigenous lands. It's never been sold, never been ceded, otherwise surrendered or given up. And, uh, you know, Canada, through colonialism, has imposed laws on us. That are still there, like the Indian Act and the reserve system. So your paper describes how um, indigenous knowledge is often viewed as subservient to Western science, or, or, or seen as less than. Have you witnessed that yourself? I I think so. As I've sort of delved more into learning about Kusanich knowledge on our on our homelands, uh, I've come to realize that our knowledge system is equally scientific to Western or mainstream knowledge, right? So, you know, there is that opportunity for for reconciliation to, to try to understand Indigenous knowledge systems. And, you know, that's the opportunity that we have here. Do you have an idea, though, of where there is a disconnect between Indigenous knowledge and Western science, how you would, you would see that being resolved? I work with... Uh, children and youth in my community and my focus is is on 
the resurgence of indigenous knowledge and our connection to our lands and those and fostering strong senses sense of identity within those children and youth and then you know it's sort of like building from the ground up rebuilding our communities right one of my elder teachers often talks about what we really want is the dignity to be able to live within our homeland as Spanish people. And when we get to that point, we can engage in processes like environmental assessment or, uh, you know, other colonial processes from a position of strength. If you if we pull back and look at the big picture, though, what do you think is at stake if Indigenous knowledge is ignored in the fight against climate change? Yeah, that's the that's the big thing, right? I mean, at, at the highest level, we're all in it together in a lot of ways, and uh, that's the sort of hypocrisy that Canada has. It's, all right, um, I thank you very very much for your time. Okay, thank you. Nick Claxton is a member of the Saanich Nation on Vancouver Island. He's also an assistant professor at the University of Victoria. Even those who advocate for Indigenous knowledge to take a more central role in decision-making say the way it gets gathered and used has problems. Janelle Baker is an anthropologist at Athabasca University in Alberta. For years, she worked as a consultant on traditional land use, and she calls the knowledge gathering an extractive industry in itself. There's certain elders who just are, are fed up or very frustrated. They're like, we, some new person comes, we tell them how we're affected, uh, and then the development occurs, and then someone else comes, we tell them the same thing, and the development occurs. So, you know, they, they don't feel like anyone's really... Um, Responding, and so that's why I kind of make that argument that this you know, interaction, this consultation, sort of dance that's happening, is quite extractive because you know the the companies have to demonstrate, or the consulting firms working with them have to demonstrate that they have consulted communities. So you know they uh, write down every time they talk to somebody, every time they call, every time they send an email. There's like these charts, right? These spreadsheets of every time we've attempted to consult, and you know, and then they actually talk to somebody, that person shares very personal information, you know, teachings, that's a gift that someone is giving these people. Uh, and then they boil it down to a report that gets refuted, and then it moves on. And so to me, that knowledge is just being extracted to prove that they've consulted without actual, you know, actually considering what that person has taught or shared. The clash, says Baker, comes between an environmental assessment approach that wants to itemize specific sites for food gathering or ceremony in isolation so they can be worked around, and one that sees the landscape and the people more holistically. She believes if non-Indigenous people got better at listening and considering other ways of knowing, it could benefit everyone. You know, my first response uh, to those kind of, that kind of tension you know, is that there's a bit of racism. And again, that it's a colonial sort of way of thinking, right? That, that like Western science is right. I mean, and, and the only way to know things. And so I think about like when I was working with Fort Mackay and their berry project, we had a berry project where we monitored their community berry patches um, with a group of elders. And one of the elders, Clara Boucher, uh, talked about how the cranberries were better 
um, at Moose Lake. They're kind of really sacred, clean area that they really respect. And um, yeah, and she said that it, they're better there, but that, you know, we had rain gauges and it showed that the rainfall was actually less and berries like water. And so it was kind of this mystery. But Clara right away said, well, there's all this mist that comes off the lake and the berries really like that. And so some of the scientists we were working with, you know, put in some sort of humidity monitors and found that she was right, you know, so the mist was there. And so, again, if we just sort of relax and let, you know, open our minds a bit, I think there are definitely a lot of times where that knowledge can come together if we can really hear one another, where even scientists are starting to say, okay, we do have different kinds of relationships and way of understanding and respecting uh, other living beings on Earth. And frankly, I think a lot of us are thinking of those you know, of, of learning from those ways of knowing about the landscape to kind of save us all from, <laughs> from climate change, right? Like, how do we live better and in better relations with, with all living beings on, on Earth? Janelle Baker is an anthropologist at Athabasca University in Alberta. Before we go, we want to leave you with a few final thoughts. First up is Ethel Blondin-Andrew. She's a Dene elder. And when we were talking, I asked her if there's a word for climate change in Dene. Here's what she told me. I have a real interest in this. And I found a word in Dene that's, that's pronounced which means polar reversal. Now, how do non-scientific traditional knowledge, experiential-based people come up with a word like that? How do they know about polar reversal? How do they, they know about Nahaho, um, which are like dinosaurs, the big ones that, that walk? How do they know those words? In what context? It didn't come from a university. It didn't come from an anthropologist or a biologist or... Uh, any of those uh, disciplines, it's coming from the oral tradition of the people. So means we change spots in the world. What is north becomes south. What is south becomes north. Now, nothing speaks more about climate change than polar reversal. Wow. (laughs) So that's so interesting. And with that, we end this episode. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast, have a listen and give us a review. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we'll look at whether all the data that's available on climate change really ends up moving the meter when it comes to action, or if a good cli-fi book, by which I mean climate fiction, can have a bigger impact. Special thanks this week to the Reporting in Indigenous Communities students at the University of British Columbia, and to our colleague, Andre Mayer, you can subscribe to his What on Earth newsletter, and I strongly suggest you do that. And also thanks this week to the What on Earth team. Associate producer Cameron Perrier, digital producer Althea Manison, producer Lisa Johnson. Ross Bragg was our technician this week. Monisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.